Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am covering in this audio 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 27. Our immediate context is this. In the first part of chapter 9, Paul has given a, given a very strong argument to the Corinthians that he was free to receive support from them if In fact, he had the right to receive support from them, financial support. However, he was not using that right because he didn't want to make people stumble to make people think he was just preaching for the sake of the money and not for the sake of the gospel. He's carrying on a theme that he had, which he started in chapter 8, the problem of eating idol meat. He said, yes, I have knowledge about eating meat sacrificed to idols. I know that idols don't exist, and therefore I'm not committing idolatry when I eat that meat, but I give up my right to eat idol meat for the sake of my weaker brethren, brethren who are weaker in conscience. So we talked about giving up his rights in chapter 8. In the first part of chapter 9, he's talking about giving up his rights to have support. And now he's going to talk in this section, verses 19 through 27 of 1 Corinthians 9, he's going to talk about becoming all things to all men by giving up things in order that the gospel might be spread. So we start in verse 19. In chapter 9, 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, Although I am a free man and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. Now, how is he free? Well, he's free to get material support from the churches, as he's just finished saying in the first part of this chapter. He's free to eat idle meat, as he said in chapter 8. John Gill says he's free to minister however he wanted to because he was an apostle. John Gill also says he's free from the law, as he talks about here in a little bit in the next verse. So he was free in a lot of ways. But he's given up a lot of his freedoms. Why? So he can become a slave to other people. To what other people? To people he wants to win to the gospel. In order to win more people. And that's what was on Paul's heart. That's what he cared about more than anything. Is seeing people put into the kingdom. Saved from their sins. And guaranteed eternal life. That's what motivated him. Not whether he could eat idol meat or not. How did he become a slave to all people? Well, by not taking material support. Because that would hinder the gospel. Could be by not eating idle meat, because that might make somebody stumble, but that's that's really not winning outsiders. That's keeping people happy within the church, so I'm not sure we can include that. But I think what he's talking about is not taking material support, because that would hinder the spread of the gospel. Critics would start running the gospel down because of Paul's taking money. We go to 1 Corinthians 9.20. Paul continues, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win Jews, to those under the law like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. So when he was around Jews, he would not eat pork. He would not eat shrimp. Not that he needed to do that for salvation, but just to win them as a matter of strategy and politeness and not causing people to stumble when you're trying to win them into the kingdom. Now let's look at some scriptures here. Acts 16.3 Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. This is on the on the second journey. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul circumcised Timothy because he didn't want Timothy to be a stumbling block to the spread of the gospel. Acts 18.18. 18. So Paul, having stayed on for many days in Corinth, said goodbye to the brothers and sailed away to Syria. Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He shaved his head at Sincrea because he had taken a vow. Well, why did he take a vow? That's a Jewish thing. It's probably a Nazarite vow. Well, because he, I'm sure he was trying to say, hey, I'm Jew. I, I didn't lose my Jewishness 
because I became a Christian. I don't think it's necessary to be a Jew to get saved, but on the other hand, I'm not against being Jewish. He took a vow. Let's look at another thing Paul did to show, even though that he was not under the law, he became as one or like one that was under the law. Acts 21, 20 through 26, this is after the third journey, Paul's in Jerusalem. When they heard it, that's the disciple, the apostles there that Peter's reporting to, when they heard it, they glorified God and said, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. But they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses by telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk in our customs. So what is to be done? So what Paul, of course, was telling people, you don't need to circumcise your children in order to get saved, but he was not saying don't circumcise your children so that you can be ethnically Jewish. Big difference, and people didn't understand the distinction. So these Jews will certainly hear that you've come and you've got a bad reputation here in Jerusalem. Verse 23, Acts 21. Therefore do what we tell you. We have four men who have obligated themselves with a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. That, of course, is the famous letter from Acts 15, Jerusalem Council. Then the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them. Purified, that means going through a temple ritual, a legal ritual, a Jewish legal ritual, purified himself along with them and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering for each of them would be made. So Paul went a long way to show that he was like those under the law. He was like the Jews in order to win Jews. That was his purpose, not to say that you had to do that in order to get saved. At one time, he refused to circumcise Titus because the issue was salvation. He refused to circumcise him. So that's the distinction. We go to verse 21, 1 Corinthians 9. To those who are without the law, that's Gentiles, like one without the law. So if I'm with Gentiles, I act like I'm a Gentile. I don't go around saying, oh, i got to wear a yarmulke, and I can't eat shrimp, and I can't eat pork, and i got to be circumcised. I want you to get circumcised. No, you don't do that. Paul says, I, I am living like one without the law when I'm around Gentiles. Not being without God's law, but within Christ's law to win those without the law. So his purpose in not acting like a Jew when he's with Gentiles is so it would not cause the Gentiles to stumble and make them think that they had to become Jews in order to get saved. Now this is a very famous verse, 1 Corinthians 9.21. It's one of two places in the Gospels where Paul talks about the law of Christ, and of course that is the clarion call of New Covenant theology, of which I am one, a proponent of. And so notice what Paul does. He says, I'm without the law, but he immediately hedges what he says so that people will not think he is an antinomian, that he says, oh, I'm without the law. I can go out and rape, kill, and steal, and rob banks. Vote for Democrats. I don't have, I, you know, he's not saying that. He's saying, I do have a law. It's just not the Mosaic law. It's Christ's law. And so that's why I get a little bit peeved when I read Reformed theologians saying, look at this antinomianism. You don't believe that Christians are under the moral law of Moses. No, I don't. I believe we're under the moral law of Christ. Don't call me an antinomian. If I'm under the law, L-A-W, of Christ, that makes me pronomian. It's just a different law than you reformers want to follow. Don't say that anymore. It's slanderous or libelous, depending on whether you write it or speak it. It's defamatory. It's nonsense. Quit doing that, reformed people. 
If you're under the law of Christ, you're not an antinomian. In fact, Christ's law is higher than Moses' law. Moses says don't murder. Jesus said don't get angry. There's been a switch of jurisdictions. It's just like when I go, fly from America to China, which I would never do now because of the coronavirus, but if I would ever do that, I become under the law of China when I get there. I'm judged by Chinese laws when I get there. If I break one of those Chinese laws, I can get dragged before a Chinese court. The other place of that phrase, law of Christ, is used is in Galatians 6, 2, carry one another's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, Reformed people love to say, well, we're free from the law of Moses, because the Bible actually all does say that. If you read the book of Hebrews and read Galatians and read Romans, we're free from the law of Moses. But what that means is we're free from the ceremonial parts of the law, the sacrifices. We don't have to do that anymore. We're free from the judicial aspects of the law. We don't have to stone homosexuals or rebellious sons. Well... No, that's not being free from the law. Or or sometimes they'll say, we're, we're free from the penalty of the law, but we're not free from the prescriptions of the law. All kinds of theological ledger domain in order to get around the obvious fact is that we are free from the law of Moses. We're free, folks. And, I'll, and if I ever hear reformers say that, I say, uh-huh, and you go to church on Sunday when the law clearly says that we're supposed to honor the Sabbath day, which is Saturday. Now, theotomists, even worse, they say, well, we're free from the ceremonial law, but we're not free from the judicial law. So we need to, oh, and they, they, they're they civil-tongued about it. Oh, wouldn't you love the law of Moses, the judicial law, which comes from God to govern all the nations of the world? I say, yeah, I would, but that ain't going to happen in my lifetime, folks. I'm a post-mill. I'm optimistic, but I'm not optimistic to think that the average non-Christian is going to be held to any kind of high legal standards the Church of Christ can be because we have the Holy Spirit dealing with our sin, but the Christ, the non-Christian world does not. All I expect is basic justice, no raping, killing, lying, and stealing, and so forth. That's all I expect. And if you start telling me, oh, there's no such thing as a natural law, we've got to have the law of Moses to, to rule the nations, that is theonomist nonsense, in my humble opinion. Now, how do we know that without the law means pagans, gen, uh, he, uh, Gentile pagans? Let me read the verse again to those who are without that law, like one without the law, not being without God's law, but within Christ's law, to win those without the law. What does without the law mean? That's non-Jewish pagans, Romans 2.12. All those who sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That means without the Mosaic law, because they have the law of their conscience. And all those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That means under the law of Moses. We go to verse 22, 1 Corinthians 9. To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I may by every possible means save some. Now, when Paul says to the weak I became weak, then I've studied Bible and John Gill says that he has become weak by not eating idle meat so that he will not offend those who have scruples about eating idle meat. But the problem with that is at the end of the verse he says, I'm trying to save some. Well, these people are already saved, these weak Christians. They're already saved. So it's questionable whether Paul is trying to win these weak people because they're already won into the gospel. Now, some commentators say that it might be possible to interpret this as saying that Paul is trying to save weak Christians. For example, John Gill says this, to win the weak would mean to, quote, promote their edification and welfare who might be laid under a temptation to desert the faith. Well, that's possible. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say this, that to win the weak means to, quote, establish instead of being a stumbling block to inexperienced Christians, weak in the faith. Alford, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown are quoting the commentator Alford, Alford thinks the weak are not Christians at all, for these have been already won, but those outside the church 
who are yet without strength to believe. Now, that's what I believe. But when weak Christians are by the condescending love of stronger brethren kept from falling from the faith, they are well said to be gained or won. So there you have the problem. Is it talking about winning people outside the church or winning people, making them stronger within the church? I'll let you decide on that. I'll report the problem you decide. In my opinion, I think it's he's trying to get people into the kingdom. And he became weak by scrupling to obey Jewish practices such as not eating shrimp or pork or things like that so that he could win Jews. And he would not eat idol meat so that Jews would not be scandalized by that so that he could win them. He's not trying to win Christians, I don't, in my opinion. He's trying to win non-Christians, I think. So he's become all things to all people. That doesn't mean he's a politician that says talks out of both sides of his mouth. It just means that he doesn't cause unnecessary stumbling because of cultural things. I mean, you know, I go to China. There's certain things you don't do. You don't stick your chopsticks straight up in a bowl of rice, which I did for years. Before somebody told me that means that you're wishing that the person eating opposite you was dead because they do that at funerals. I didn't know that. Well, once I knew that, guess what? It was so convenient, too. You know, you keep the chopsticks off the dirty table. You stick it in the rice. You can grab the chopsticks when you need them. It's just so convenient. And then I had to quit doing it. And I could have said, well, I don't care about this stupid Chinese custom. I'm going to keep sticking my chopsticks in the rice. I'm an American. I'm a free. I'm, I'm an American. Thank God. I'm a free American. No, I didn't do that. I put the chopsticks flat on the table like you're supposed to do. That doesn't mean I went over there and said, yeah, I'm a card-carrying Marxist now. I'm a communist. Or, by golly, I can I can have sex with all the Chinese women that are willing to do so, and there are plenty of them, for money. I'm not going to, you know, I can, I'm free to do that. Everybody else is doing it. No, you don't do that. Uh, that's not what Paul's talking about, becoming all things, becoming a moral chameleon. It's talking about doubtful things, what I say are cultural things that don't matter. Do you drive on the left side of the road or the right side of the road? Do you talk about girls' periods? The Chinese love to do that. God, I got girl students. Dr. Trotter, do you have some Kleenex? I'm having my period. I said, oh, jeez, man, this is not really the proper thing to say. Well, in China, it doesn't matter. People do that all the time. I just have to get used to it. I, don't, I shouldn't say, oh, you know, young lady, you ought not to be talking like that. So there's lots of cross-cultural things that get people upset. We should try to avoid them. That's what's so fun about being a missionary. Adam Clark summarizes it this way, quote, Giving up my own will, my own way, my own ease, my own pleasure, and my own profit. Yeah, we need to do that. And it's not that hard to do, quite frankly, because you're not doing anything immoral. It's just a matter of adjusting a little bit. 1 Corinthians 9.23 now I do all this because of the gospel, so I may become a partner in its benefits. Now that's why he was he was weak for the weak was because of the gospel. That's why I don't think he was talking about winning weak people in the church. He was talking about winning weak people outside the church by being a Jew to Jews and a Gentile to Gentiles. He does it all because of the gospel, because that's the number one thing on his mind. He wants to become a partner in its benefits. How do you become a partner in the benefits of the gospel if you are already saved? Well, how good does it feel when you win somebody into the kingdom? It feels real good. Or if you help win somebody into the kingdom. I just got a call last Sunday from a young Chinese woman who was a divorcee with a young, I guess, seven or eight-year-old kid. Kid was totally rebellious. The mother was depressed. She had suicidal ten tendencies. She did things that were, could only say could only prove that she had a death wish. Her crazy, whacked-out cultist grandmother said that she was the Virgin Mary and she was going to have a son that was going to bear the sins of the world and she was pregnant. 
and the girl's in high school. She's not pregnant. She she's not a virgin. I mean, excuse me. She's not pregnant. She had to go to the hospital to get a piece of paper to prove that she was a virgin. She comes back and shows it to her grandmother. Grandmother still doesn't believe her. Well, with a background like that, you're going to go nuts. She's lost her husband. She, by her own admission, she sucked as a mother, and she did. So I lost track of her. Moved back to America. Year and a half later, maybe two years later, I get a WhatsApp chat. She's a dedicated Christian now, and she's just been trying to contact me for a year. Couldn't get me because I lost my WeChat address, uh, account because I had gone swimming with my smartphone. Couldn't get back in. She got me through another method, and she said, I just want to tell you because you talked to me about when I was depressed, and it was, the, it was and of course, I witnessed to her while I was talking, but I was also listening to her crazy death wish type adventuresome stuff she was doing, and I just listened to her. Because I believe when you witness to people, you ought to show a genuine interest, not a fake, not a fake interest, but a genuine interest. And I was, I was genuinely interested in what she was doing. But finally, I realized she's not going to believe in Christ. She, you know, she's just talking. So I just forgot about her. Should never give up on people, folks, because you never know. She's led somebody to the Lord already since the short time she's been saved. She's gotten out of the hospital. She's got a big smile on her face, and Jesus has totally transformed her life. And did I become a partner in the benefits of the gospel by listening to her? She said, oh, I think I'm bragging when I talk about the things I'm doing now. I said, oh, no, you're not. You keep right on talking because it made me feel great to think that, what, four conversations had so much fruit? Partially, of course. There were other things that led her to the Lord, too. But it, I had a small part in it, and that I became a partner in the benefits of the gospel. I tell you, if Christians would realize how great it is to get people saved, they'd be witnessing a lot more because it is. It is a wonderful thing. I'm getting ready to call somebody right now when I finish this video in China. I've been working on it for six years now, a former student of mine. And she listens to me, and she likes talking to me, kind of like Herod Antipas liked to listen to John the Baptist. <laughs> he, didn't, he never did anything about it. Maybe this girl will be that way too. I don't know. But, boy, if she ever comes, I'm going to be real happy at any rate. As she sits over there with a coronavirus, trying to run her own life, which, of course, is miserable because everything's always going wrong. And I said, that's the way it is. You need Jesus to help you. And we'll see. I hope she'll get to the point where she realizes she can't live her life on her own, not profitably. As the NIV Study Bible says, when you become a partner in its benefits, that's when you hear Jesus saying, well done, my good and faithful child. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. That's a parable in Luke 19, 17. Well done, good slave, he told him, because you have been faithful in a very small matter. I have authority over 10 towns. I forgot the exact context of those two parables, but the idea is if you do what Jesus has called you to do down on this earth. He's going to reward you. But in fact, Paul's getting ready to talk about rewards in the very next verse. Before we go there, this sharing in the gospel, sharing in the benefits of the gospel that Paul mentions in verse 23, I said it was seeing others come to Christ, and I think that's what it is. NIV Study Bible agrees with me. John Gill and Adam Clark say it's the blessings of grace and eternal life. I may become a partner in its benefits because I have grace and eternal life just like you have grace and eternal life. Well, that could be, but I don't think that's what it is. All right, let's talk about this prize as being a partner in the benefits of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. In other words, don't be just your lackadaisical, ordinary Christian who never reads his Bible, never prays, never opens his mouth about Jesus. Don't do that because you're not going to win any reward doing that. Let me tell you what it takes to win 
a foot race and a Greek game, and we're going to look at that in just a minute. It's not easy at all. You're supposed to run in such a way, in other words, in a difficult way, so that you can win the prize. If you go to win the prize in, a, in an Olympic or Isthmian game foot race, by golly, you're going to have to train yourself. Now, Paul is appealing directly to what must have been their direct experience because of the very famous Isthmian games that were held every two years at Corinth. Corinth, of course, was on the Isthmus of Corinth, right there in the northern part of it, right between the Corinthian Gulf and the Saronic Gulf. And those games that were held there were very, they weren't as well known as the Olympics, but the, almost, they were part of the Panhellenic Games. The Greeks were great when they, great at having games. They had funerals, they had foot races, they had athletic contested funerals, which to me is a little bit weird, but that's what they did. The Isthmian Games were second only in importance to the Olympics, and so the Corinthians would be very well aware of what Paul's talking about here. And again, Paul uses metaphors. He, he adapts himself to his audience, which any good communicator will do. Just like when he was in Athens, he talked about all the gods that were up there and all the philosophies they were into. All right, run in such a way that you can win. Let's look at some of that. John Gill says, quote, The act of running is a motion forward, a following on to know the Lord, a going from strength to strength, from one degree of grace to another, a pressing forward toward the mark for the prize, and requires spiritual strength from Christ. Okay, there the way that Gill takes it is run in such a way as that you're moving forward. Okay, but I think more likely it's run in such a way run in such a way that you have had to exercise yourself and train yourself so that you can run in order to win. Let me read a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. These are the words in which the instructors of the young in the exercise schools, the gymnasia, and the spectators on the race course exhorted their pupils to stimulate them to put forth all exertions. The gymnasium was a prominent feature in every Greek city. Every candidate had to take an oath that he had been 10 months in training and that he would violate none of the regulations. He lived on a strict, self-denying diet, refraining from wine and pleasant foods, and enduring cold and heat and most laborious discipline. Ooh, discipline. Oh, I'm so sorry I used that profane word in a Bible study. Discipline. Hardest thing in the world to do. And I don't think you can, you can do it by sheer mind power or self-control. Some people do that. Kobe Bryant used to do that. But... The best kind of discipline is the kind that comes from the internal workings of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit controls your flesh and helps you be disciplined. We go to 1 Corinthians 9.25. Paul continues with his metaphor. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. Self-control. Ooh, another bad word. However, they do it to receive a crown that will fade away, but we a crown that will never fade away. Now, what Paul is saying here is, yeah, it's hard being a Christian minister of the gospel. Yeah, it's real hard. But hey, look at what you're going to win. A crown that will not fade away. The runners in the Isthmian Games, when they ran, they got a laurel leaf, and that thing faded, disappeared. But Christians who run in the Christian race at the end of our life, at the end of our course, we get a crown that will never fade away. And what is that crown? Eternal life. Life, life, life. Let's look at some scriptures that talk about what awaits Christians who are faithful Christians. First Timothy 4, 8. There is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. The crown which comes from righteousness, the righteousness which has been imputed to us by Christ, results, eventuates, finally, at the end of our life, in a crown we win the race. We win. We're the winner when we die. All of us, even the most humble Christian. 
James 1, 12, a man who endures trials is blessed because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Notice that there's trials, but we're blessed in our trials because at the end of all the trials is a crown of life, a crown which is which is life. The life is the crown. Eternal life is our crown that we get when we die. First Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Notice the crown there is unfading. That means you're going to live forever. Your glory will go on forever. You will be manifested as having the excellent characteristics of God and that manifestation, that glorious show of God's characteristics in you will go on forever and ever and ever, a world without end unfading crown of glory. Revelation 2.10. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. John writes to the seven churches, look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will have affliction for 10 days. That's not a very long time. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, the life that's going to be eternal compared to 10 days of suffering. We have to remember that. What did Paul say? I think it's in the second, in the second book of Corinthians. He said, you're going to receive an eternal weight of glory, so that when you compare that to the sufferings of this present day, there is no comparison. Revelation 3.11, I am coming quickly. Hold on to what you have. Coming quickly, in other words, in just a few years at 87, and when he's going to come wipe out the persecuting Jews, hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown, your reward. So the crown could be life, it could be righteousness, it's all the benefits that come with the gospel. I don't think we need to be too picky about exactly what the crown is. It's all the good things that come from believing in Jesus. Now, in order to win this crown, let's go back to the analogy. In a race, you have to exercise self-control in everything. In which ways? John Gill says, the runner must contain himself from venery, which is a fancy old-fashioned way of saying you've got to quit fornicating with young girls, guys, if you're going to win this race. By the way, I just read, I've been listening to Greek podcast. They did have races for women. They raced amongst themselves, and the men raced naked, the women did not. But I assume that those, and they did, those women had to exercise themselves just like the men did. I mean, it's not easy. But at any rate, you don't go around fornicating. You abstain from certain foods, as John Gill says not as a matter of weak conscience, because of discipline. The Greeks had the, you know, they had nutritionists back then. They said, this is what you should eat. This is what you shouldn't eat. Ooh. And you had to exercise for 10 months to train for these races. 10 months. Here's a, an ancient writer, Epictetus. I think Epictetus was a stoic philosopher. I can't remember. I think he was. But this is what Epictetus said on training for the Olympics. You must observe a strict regimen, must live on food which you dislike. You must abstain from all delicacies, must exercise yourself at the necessary and prescribed times, both in heat and in cold. You must drink nothing cooling, take no wine as formerly. In a word, you must put yourself under the directions of a pugilist as you would under those of a physician, and afterwards enter the list. Here you may get your arm broken, your foot put out of joint be obliged to swallow mouthfuls of dust, to receive many stripes, and after all, be conquered. Now, of course, now Paul, by the way, has shifted. I didn't mention this, but in verse 25, he's shifted from the metaphor of racing. Now he's just talking about competing in other events, including boxing. That's why Adam Clark is talking about how tough it was to be a boxer back then. Paul's now talking about boxing, wrestling, discus throws, competing in general, other kind of events they had, they had back then. 
We move on to 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27. Therefore, Paul continues, I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, what does he mean, one who runs aimlessly? That means one who runs not trying to win the prize. You know, you've got to have strategy. Do I take the inside lane? Do I take the outside lane? Do I start off slow and then and kick at the end? Or, you know, you've got to have a, a plan, a strategy. You just don't run around and say, wee, I'm running in the Olympics. Isn't this fun? Of course, the metaphor means is Christians who are just saying, well, you know, I'll talk about somebody about Jesus if one day it, it, the situation arises. You know, you don't have any strategy. You don't have any focus. You don't have any aim. So Paul's not like that. He says, I'm not like one boxing that beats the air. If you watch boxing, a swing and a miss, you hit the air, don't you? You don't hit the opponent's face or body. You hit the air. That means you're losing. You're not doing well. Paul says, I'm not, I plan to box to win, folks. I'm not boxing against the devil so I can hit the air. I'm boxing against the devil so I can hit him in the face. And in order to do that, to do that, he says, I discipline my body. Oh, that's that nasty word again, discipline. I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, Paul, again, is using a metaphor, so it's hard to know whether he's talking directly about discipline in his body by what he eats and how he exercises. He might be referring to the fact he doesn't eat idle meat and gives up the desire to eat some steak, which might taste very good, but he doesn't want to make his people stumble and the Jews stumble at that because he wants to witness to them and get them saved. So that could be what he's talking about, discipline in his body. It could be he, he doesn't have sex with people he's not married to because that would cause a scandal to the church so that's a discipline that's a certain self-discipline remember paul's a single man it's kind of hard when you don't have a wife to to take care of your excess testosterone but he paul says i bring it under strict control now of course this sounds ascetic and the medieval ascetic says see there he's whipping himself with whips and he's wearing hair shirts no it just means he doesn't do anything to make people stumble and if that means not eating something a pork or bacon in order to keep a jew happy or steak to keep from eating idle meat, to keep somebody from stumbling, well, then he doesn't do it. He disciplines himself, and he strictly controls himself. Now, some people say that this is a metaphor that talks about bringing his body under strict control about what he does. In other words, it's an internal discipline against his flesh. As John Gill puts it, Paul is talking about the body of sin, the flesh. When he, Paul is exercising strict control over his flesh, it's not his physical body. But it's the sinful passions, the sinful urge within one's body that urges the members of your body to commit sins. Now, I don't believe that's what Paul's talking about. I think he was talking about literally disciplining his body, as, and that shows how we need to discipline our Christian lives. But if it is true, in fact, he could be talking about both, both physical discipline and spiritual discipline, spiritual self-control and physical self-control, both. Because when you control yourself spiritually, you control yourself physically because your spirit controls your body. Let's see what John Gill says about this. Quote, this is not to be understood by the apostle of his natural body. I disagree with Gill on that. This is not to be understood of his keeping it under by immoderate watchings, fastings, and labors. I do agree with that. Or by whipping and scourging and lying upon the bare ground and other such practices. But of the body of sin, the corruption of nature, and of that being laid under some restraints, of the mortifying the deeds of the body through the spirit, of, of crucifying the affections with the lust. Well, see, here's two extremes. One, you got asceticism. Paul's preaching asceticism? No, he's not preaching fastings and beating yourself with whips and all that kind of stuff in order to get holy. He's not talking about it. He's just talking about restraining yourself for the sake of the weak, not eating idle meat. 
So Gill has a false dichotomy here, in my opinion. He's got one extreme of physical mortifications of the flesh through asceticism, and on the other hand, there's spiritual mortifications of the flesh, mortifying your sins. I think it's rather disciplining your physical desires and dis and mortifying your flesh. I, I believe he's talking about both. Now, when Paul says that he brings his body under strict control, he could be referring to the control that wrestlers have to have over their opponent's body. <laughs> so, this might be a stretch, but this is this is Adam Clark has given me this idea. Or John Gill says this quote: "When you have control over your opponent, you you have the command of him. You throw him on the ground and you drag him about at pleasure. Of course, they're not fighting with the, by the Marcus of Queensbury rules there. There, I'm telling you, back then they were pretty rough. They did have a rule: you couldn't grab each other's genitals. I said, well, that's nice. They did not allow that. But other than that, I think they could pretty. I think you couldn't poke each other's eyes out either." I remember hearing the rules, and I remember thinking, well, they're halfway civilized, but still, it was a rough business. But anyway, Adam Clark says that this idea of keeping his body under control is an allusion to boxers and wrestlers to trip and give the antagonist a fall and to keep him down when he was down and having obliged him to acknowledge himself conquered, make him a slave. In other words, you control your opponent. I don't know. That's a stretch. Because Paul's talking about self-control, not controlling the other person. He could be saying, just as you have to control the other person in wrestling, you have to the other person's body, you have to control your own body, too, if you're going to win. Maybe, but I don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 27. In chapter 10, Paul will preach against idolatry and sexual immorality. I guess he's moving on from the idea of self-control and discipline your body to the idea of, hey, you better not sin, control yourself. Don't take your body and bow down to an idol and don't take your body and join it to someone who is not your wife or your husband. I hope you stay tuned for that audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.